days, none above him, none before him. Our God is over all. This indeed sets us up to run to the Word of God from Philippians chapter 4. Um, as we look at this question of what are the keys to truly being content? How can we truly be content? The keys to truly being content, we see this. And, and we just really sung about the full picture. We, we've just sung about the full power of being truly content. We live in a world that's confused about contentment. In fact, if you were to talk about the word contentment, there's a lot of people that wouldn't know really how to use that word. Um, there's a lot of people in this present day and time that don't really think a great deal about contentment. They might confuse it with mere happiness. They might confuse it with an emotion. Um, but this morning we want to come and we want to see how the soul of God's people can truly be content. Um, this morning, as we do this, we, we come to Philippians chapter 4, a new section, and really this is a, a section, chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. We're just going to really look at the first couple of verses of this section this morning. This is part one, so we're going to see some keys that are here. Um, we're not going to see all of them. In my pocket, I have um, my set of keys. Um, my dad, when he was on staff here at the Life of This Church, he would often talk about how when we get to heaven, there's going to be no more keys. And he was really looking forward to that because keys can be such a problem. I mean, finding the right key for the right door, for the right thing uh, is often difficult. And it's funny, you can kind of get stuck without keys. You, if you don't have your keys to your car, you're just kind of stuck. You can't get in or you can't. It, this is what opens a door. This is what makes something possible. It's a very particular and certain way in which we do that. So we know about keys. We want to hear about this morning and see in this text the key to being content. And as we're going to see, the Apostle Paul is eminently qualified to tell us what the keys to contentment are, and we see it in his life as he's relating to the Philippian people. So notice on your outline there, hopefully you've been able to print your outline. If you're new to us this morning, we just want to say that we study the Bible in depth, and uh, if you can go to our website, print out the notes, that will help you immensely uh, as we follow along. God's Word is to be studied because God is to be known. We don't know everything about God, so that's why He's given us His Word, so that we can know what we need to know about Him. And uh, this morning, we want to take seriously his word and to study it. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. We'll read the passage, and then we'll kind of remember how it fits in the whole context of Philippians. I want to just remind you, when you're studying the Bible, you need to know the context. Otherwise, you can, you can misunderstand what God's word says or simply be confused by it. But when we know the context, it makes it come alive. And so let's look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Apostle Paul writing to the Philippian church. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Verse 11, now, I, now that I am speaking of being in need, for I, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in every situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, some of your ears just perked up. You said, oh, I, I know that last verse. In fact, I really like the last verse. I'm not sure I like the verses before that. You know, so often we can look at something like this and we can say, we, we, we can kind of pick and choose. We, we come to the Bible like it's a smorgasbord and, you know, or like a buffet and like, oh, I like a little bit of that and I like a little bit of that. Oh, no, no I, don't, I don't like that so much. The idea of being content with little and the idea of being content with, oh, I like that, being content with a lot. And then verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh, I I really like that. In fact, some of you have that on the wall in your house. But do we really realize that this is talking about a context not of I can just go for what I want to go for and God's going to help me go for it? Or is this talking about the secret, the key to true contentment? In fact, look with me in verse 12 and circle that word secret, the, word, the secret that's there. This is really shown as a mystery that can be discovered and it's something that the world doesn't have a full knowledge of this. And that's an important thing for us to consider, that the world doesn't really know the truth of true contentment. It's a mystery to them, but God unveils the mystery. God gives the key. Well, let's just kind of remember where this fits in the whole letter. Remember the setting of the Philippian letter. Notice number one here, more than 10 years earlier, Paul and Silas, and I love this narrative. This is exciting. More than 10 years earlier, Paul and Silas had preached the gospel in Philippi and planted a church. It was the first church in all of Europe. So they were moving to the west, and they move out of Asia, and they're moving into Europe So the Philippi church is the first church in Europe. And then notice the next thing, Lydia. Circle the name Lydia. Lydia, a seller of purple, was the first convert in Europe. So as we read in the book of Acts, we hear about how this woman Lydia, um, a a rather uh, probably a wealthy woman, a woman of stature in their community, this woman is the very first person to come to faith in Jesus on the whole continent of Europe. And so, you know, I love the fact that God um, esteems women in a beautiful way. I mean, the very first woman to realize, or the very first person to realize that Jesus was risen from the dead was a woman. Um, We see in the Old Testament that God working through the women of the Old Testament, there's a lot of firsts with women in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Here's one of them. Lydia, a seller of purple, is the first convert in Europe. Number two. After being harassed by a demon-possessed slave girl, Paul and Silas cast the demon out of the girl, which leads to a riot. They were beaten and jailed and then miraculously released by an earthquake. The Philippian jailer comes to faith in Jesus after Paul stopped him from killing himself. Now, just right out there to the side, action. Um, The the story of the New Testament um, is, a, is a story of action. The life of Jesus is about action. And the life of the apostles following in Jesus' footsteps is about action. And the life for us should be a, a life of action as God is moving and working in our lives. Look at number three. After God had moved in many people's hearts and, and a church is established, Paul and Silas move on to other cities, ending up in a prison in Rome. 
So they're in a circumstance that is really hard. Number four, the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus to Rome with news. So this church, Philippi, sends a guy all the way to Rome, and he brings news and a financial gift to help Paul and others that are around him. Look at number five. From Paul's prison cell in Rome, it's likely that he is imagining the faces of Lydia and her family, the jailer and his family, Iodia, Syntyche, Clement, and many others who were in the church at Philippi. One of the great things about the letter of Philippians is that it, it's a very personal letter, but also it's a very public letter. Um, it, it has much to do with us where we can realize so many things about that church's struggles and that church's lives that we can apply that to our lives and even the individuals of it, that God's word is alive for us and that we can, we can experience it. And, I, and it's our prayer is that as we study this beautiful passage that we really will learn something that will truly affect our lives lives as we see it had affected their lives. So notice this on your outline and fill it in. So Philippians is a thank you note. That's what it is. It's a thank you note with instructions and encouragement. So it's talking about their biographical lives. There's no doubt about that, but it's also talking about spiritual doctrinal truths that we can sink our teeth into and that we can learn from, that we can be changed by, transformed by the way of God. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, we, we, we started off with that a few months ago. It's a big expression of gratitude amidst truly difficult or even horrible circumstances. Both Paul is in prison and they are in trouble. So this letter comes out of the crucible, this, this great test of trouble and difficulty, not only for Paul's life being in pro, prison, but also for the Philippians. So this issue of contentment is a big deal, not only through the life of Paul, but to the people of God that he is ministering to. There's several other things there that you can remember about their deep relationship with one another, but let's go to the next page. Go to page two and notice here, what does contentment really mean? What does it mean to be content? First of all, if we're asking that question, what does it mean to be content? We need to first recognize this, that the world really doesn't know because nothing in the world can make it so. I, I don't mean for that to rhyme, but it does. The, re- the world really doesn't know what does it mean to be content. And part of the reason they don't know what it means to con- be content is that there's nothing in the world that can make us content. If we don't know God, if God is not our worldview, if God is not um, the basis of our purpose and the basis of our identity, the fallen world that's around us is going to leave us still lacking, and it's going to leave us hungry. How do we know that the world doesn't know? Because we see an endless pursuit of a few things, an endless pursuit of possessions. Think about that. The world over, in wealthy societies as well as in poor societies, we see an endless quest for things of this world. 
in many, many, many people as they're, whether they're watching a commercial or whether in a, an impoverished third world country and they see a, a vehicle go by or they, they walk past neighborhoods that they can't live in, there is, whatever the circumstance, whether a poor nation or a rich nation, a poor society or a wealthy society, there is this pursuit of possessions. And the more advanced we are, the more we think about possessions very often. Notice the next one. There's an endless pursuit of experiences. Um, we see it um, in advertisement for all kinds of activities. To, to have some type of exciting experience, to have some type of a certain vacation, a certain destination, extreme sports, or certain hobbies, or games, that, that there's very often an endless pursuit of that. And the hope that these things that are so exciting to us, or perhaps so relaxing to us, or perhaps so whatever to us, makes us content. But what's interesting, you come back from vacation, and um, we can find ourselves right back where we were before we left. The endless pursuit of relationships. We see relationships very often um, being gained and then lost, gained and then lost. New friends, old friends, um, there, it's a common problem when we, when we even look at the issue of marriage, um, that, that very often divorce is, is, is such an indicator to us that, that, man, we're broken and, and we're, we're looking for something, we're searching for something, and, and we're trying to sometimes find it in a mate. And, and when that mate doesn't meet that expectation, there's a disappointment and there's a disillusionment. And instead of staying and in, in learning to work together and learning to love as God has called us to love, one or the other or both give up and run away. And then very often run to another relationship seeking for that. What about forgotten friends? What about those kinds of things? What, so relationships. What about this one, the next one? It's the pursuit of a feeling. We see the idea of a pursuit of feeling. We talk a lot about feelings in this day and time. How do you feel? How do you feel? Um, not so much what are you going to do and what do you think, but how do you feel? And this preoccupation with a certain emotional um, mindset or a certain uh, relief that would come regarding feelings is, is very much seen in the, the massive problem of drugs and alcohol and um, just pursuing all kinds of things that provide some type of an escape. Unfortunately, with the issue of feelings, we often see that even played out in, quote, modern-day Christianity. Churches that are built and their services and their worship experiences are built around a feeling instead of being built around the person of Jesus Christ. Um, it's the idea of wanting to go to church so I will feel better and so that I will feel close to God as opposed to going to church in order to be with God's people and experiencing God in that way, but also learning of God and allowing his truth to change us so that we might truly be closer to him as opposed to a certain feeling. Well, there's a last one that's here. It's, we see this in the endless pursuit of an earthly dream. People live their whole lives toward an earthly dream very often. And 
This is part of the reason that even in wealthier societies where there's people, um, wealthier free societies, free market societies, which, which I believe is wonderful, but even there we see many people that are pursuing a certain dream. We talk about the American dream. Um, very often that has to do with your own house and your own wealth and your own independence. Or maybe it's the dream of sports. How many times over these 52 years that I've been alive have I seen people go after the dream of sports? And, and, and there can be some great things in that and some wonderful things can come out of sports, but I've also seen many put so much hope in that for their own performance and their own perhaps success or fame only to be so very disappointed. We often see it not only in sports and in various other accomplishments financially, but we see it in notoriety and fame, that some are left without the notoriety and fame, and, and they're eventually forgotten, and they come to say, well, what did I do all of this for? Friends, the world doesn't really understand what it means to be content the way God talks about contentment. The contentment of the world, the brief moment of fame, the brief moment of success, the passing pleasures of riches are just that. They're temporary. But God talks to us, and we see, for those who know God and love God and are growing close to God, we see that he offers a contentment that is far deeper than anything that can be pursued in the earth. And this is, we, we get this snapshot view. We get this view into Paul's heart. A man who had, who had come and, and found that the true, to, the true key to contentment is being in God and close to God and serving God and having the values of God. Jeremiah Burroughs, you can see on your outline here or on the screen, Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan. And notice the dates of his life, 1599 to 1646. He lived in England, and he was a Puritan pastor and writer, a theologian. And he wrote a, a very wonderful book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in the rare jewel of Christian contentment, notice this quote, that he gives us a definition of what true Christian contentment is. And notice that this isn't just contentment, but it's Christian contentment. Look what he says. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of mind which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly arrangement in every circumstance. You know, the Puritans were thinkers. The Puritans were biblical thinkers. They chose a quieter life. They chose a, a life that wasn't caught up in all the pursuits of the English society around them, in some cases the Dutch society around them, or the, the society of Europe, and then eventually in America. They, they came because they wanted to be able to, in, in some way, be alone with God not have the state telling them what to believe and what to do, not having society to, to dictate to them. And so they were, they were careful to say, well, they, let's run to the word and see what the creator has said about life. And so the Puritan writers very often thought very deeply about what scripture has, has said so that we can live and know God in a biblical way. So they would, have, they would have noticed these types of verses right here, contentment in the Bible. In Luke chapter 3, we see 
the, uh, John the Baptist speaking, and he says, be content in your wages. Wow, that, that, might, that might speak to us even in this day, just that, that, that very phrase that's there from John the Baptist. What about, what about 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8? If we have food and covering with these, we will be content. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Are you squirming yet? Let me tell you that I've been squirming. This week, I said to Marcy, I said, man, this text is really getting me. Preparing this sermon is bothering me. Because so often, no matter who we are, we can be tempted to just look at society around us and everything around us for our contentment. And this passage and these passages, the, the biblical view just knocks the chalks out from underneath our false support of an earthly contentment. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse, twin, verse 10. He says, I am well content with weaknesses with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, and then circle those last three words, for Christ's sake. You see, Paul was so identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he so valued being near to Christ and with Christ that even all of this list, the weaknesses, the insults, the distresses, the persecutions and even the difficulties if it's for Christ it's okay you see this is a very different view than the world when when the world is looking for its contentment it's looking for it for just the exact opposite not not weaknesses but strengths oh i don't want insults i want accolades i don't want distresses i want no stress i want i want peace persecution no i want to be celebrated difficulties no i want Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So being like God and being happy about it brings great gain. God calls it, you know, there's some people who they're trying to be godly, but they don't want to be happy about it. They, you know, they're, they're striving for that in some way in their mind or in their heart, and they're, they're missing the whole point is to be glad in God. So how does Paul do this? What is Paul's contentment, and how is this such a great lesson for us? Notice here, um, there toward the bottom of page two, the Philippians had been the only church to support him years earlier. Now they had done it again. So many years early, they had supported Paul when nobody else would support him. And then here, many years later, they came back around. They sent Epaphroditus. They sent a gift in verses 4, 10 through 9, is this thank you note. And here's what's interesting about this. I, I think it's interesting that at the beginning of Philippians, he is saying thank you in chapter 1. And here at the end of Philippians, because we're nearing the end of this letter, at the end of Philippians in chapter 4, he's again talking about his gratitude to the people of Philippi, and he's declaring how God has met his needs through them. You see, Paul, the Philippians' gift arrived at a critical time in Paul's life. Think about that. That Epaphras shows up in Rome, likely Paul didn't know he was coming, and 
And perhaps, you know, we don't know how long it had been since he had seen him. We, we, we would say that, that Paul is figuring out who he is and what's going on. And, and here he walks in the door. And as they're talking and as they're getting reacquainted, Epaphras says, the Philippian church, the people that you love and the people that have loved you, have sent you a gift to help take care of your needs. Think about this. He was in a small prison apartment. It's, it's what it means to be under house arrest. There's many places in Rome, and there's other places in secular history where we see when the Romans didn't want to deal with somebody right away, and uh, they, were, they, they might throw them in a prison, an actual prison cell, or they might lock them up in a house. It's similar in this day and time when we don't have a dangerous criminal. We don't somebody, have somebody that we, we think are, is going to run away, so they might be held in house arrest. We might put an ankle bracelet on them, and we might let them, you know, they're not a big flight risk. In fact, in this case, we, we know the apostle, apostle Paul had appealed to Caesar, and so he, he goes to Rome knowing that he is going to be tried, and there's charges that are brought against him, and he's awaiting that. So notice this, he's chained to a Roman soldier. We see that in Acts 28, 16. Paul had little freedom. He had few friends and he was awaiting trial before Emperor Philodon Nero. Now, if you're not a Christian, you haven't heard very many Christian history lessons, you may not know that Nero was one of the harshest, um, most brutal persecutor of Christians in all the Roman era. There were some others as, to, as well, but Nero was one of the worst. Nero loved to torture Christians. In fact, Nero loved to gain fame among the Roman people, among the populace, by uh, allowing Christians to be the pregame show before the gladiator events. And so Christians would be brought into arenas, not only in Rome, but all around the Roman world. Uh, I have stood in the Colosseum in Rome, but I've also stood in a, in a similar Colosseum. In fact, it looks very similar to it. Um, on the south, in, south side of the Mediterranean Sea in El Jim, El Jim, Tunisia. And in El Jim, Tunisia, what is modern-day Tunisia, there was a Roman Colosseum that at this time Christians were persecuted there. I have stood in Carthage at the arena in Carthage where Perpetua and Felicita we were brought along with many other Christians um, before wild animals to be torn to pieces because of their Christian faith. And so here is Nero. Paul is going to stand before Nero. No telling what is going to happen here. In fact, biblical scholar F.B. Meyer wrote this about Paul's circumstances as he was in Rome. Look what it says there on this quote. He was deprived of every comfort and cast as a lonely man on the shores of the great and strange metropolis of Rome. With every movement of his hand clanking a chain, and nothing before him but the lion's mouth or the sword. Friends, the setting of Paul was not a setting that was sweet and quaint. It was a difficult setting. But you would never know that by the letter that he writes to the Philippi people. He writes something as if he is held at the pinnacle of all of God's great 
earthly blessing. You would think that he's living in a mansion overlooking the Aegean Sea. You would think that he is experiencing all of the great beauty of years of ministry, but instead, as an old man, he sits in a big thriving city chained to a soldier under house arrest. We know that he doesn't have very much because at different points along the way, he's, he's asked for somebody to bring a cloak. He's asked for somebody to come and bring this. We, we, we see that he's, he goes through the list of the troubles that he's experienced in life. And very often, he was walking in the heat of the day and sleeping in the cold of the night in an arid place, very often without shelter, very often hungry, shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead at different times. We're talking about a guy that's been through it, and here toward the end of his life, he finds himself in prison. You would think, well, there's a great reward. There's retirement for those that are in ministry where he can just really enjoy things. Well, that's not what we see here. Yet, notice this at the end of this page, page two, yet beneath his expression of thanks to the Philippians, we see a man who, despite his dire circumstances, is utterly filled in at peace. We know that because what we studied over the last few weeks, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the what? And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus like this guard that I'm chained to. We, we, we see this, this just flowing peace that comes from a man that is looking not to the circumstances around him for his joy and his peace and his contentment, but to God. See, it's, he is utterly at peace and he is utterly content. How is this possible? Flip the page. Let's look at this issue of how he would be content there are five keys to contentment. Today, we're only going to look at the first two, and uh, next week, we'll look at the other three that, we come, that come right out of this passage. Notice the passage at the top of the page again. He says, I, verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, in this verse, we see a couple of things. First of all, he says, I rejoice, that in the, I rejoice in the Lord that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's not saying you didn't have concern for me. We know that they were concerned for him in the early days of his ministry because of their support of him when nobody else was supporting him. And we know of their concern, their concern for him now, but he gives us a, a clue here about what he means. He says, you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity. So we don't know what that means. We don't know why they didn't have an opportunity. We don't know if they didn't have any funds whatsoever, or we don't know if they were kind of on lockdown like we are for some period of time, or we don't know if they had lost track of where he was, that nobody knew where he was. But someone perhaps brought back a message saying, hey, Paul has popped up in Rome, and we heard from this guy who had heard from this guy that heard from this gal that he is actually in Rome and he's under house arrest. Does, do they know how to get to him? Yeah, we know how to get to him. Okay, great. And then you can just imagine the Philippian church coming together, and they bring to him a significant gift, and they send to him a wonderful servant that's been trusted. So notice here with me, 
that the Apostle Paul is, is not counting on anything from them over these years. He, he hasn't asked them and written to them and asked them, hey, would you please support me in my need? He's just looking to God, living his life in the circumstance that he has there, and then God comes and meets a need. Notice this. Number one, a contented person is confident in God's providence. A contented person is confident in God's providence. Look at that verse again. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Let's go on and look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I believe that that means that Paul was saying even before anything showed up, he was content. Think about the situation. First bullet point there, years had gone by. For whatever reason, they couldn't help for a long time. But now they could, and they did. And it met all of his needs. We see that down in chapter 4, verse 18. Now, there's two ways that God works in the world to, to do his will. Notice the first one here. It's a miracle. God can perform miracles, and he has performed miracles throughout human history. And what is a miracle? A miracle is God's direct supernatural work by interrupting the natural world. That word interrupting is very important here. God comes in and he interrupts the laws of physics or he interrupts the laws of biology or he interrupts um, the circumstances that are here. He interrupts the ability for things to be known um, of the natural world and he does something supernatural. That means beyond what would naturally occur. Examples of this are the parting of the Red Sea or the healing of blind people or the raising of the dead. All, any of those are direct interruptions with natural order. But there's other, there's other ways in which God um, works and acts in the world. The second one is providence. Providence is God's supernatural work of key words here, weaving together all the events, the words, the acts, the decisions, the elements of natural life for his divine purposes. Now, what's so amazing about this is that as he's weaving it together, he is working in the natural order. He's working in the circumstances of both the world and of people and, and listen to this, it's not just Christians that he does this with. It's not just is the Israelites that he does this with. He does this with anybody and with everybody. He can take a God-hater and cause that God-hater to do exactly what he wants him to do to perform his work. Now, here is one of those instances where we see that God is working in a providential way in Paul's life, that the Philippians somehow come into the place where they can help him again, and they help him, and Paul is, is exclaiming the fact that, that God is working in these circumstances, and I have confidence that he knows what he is doing. Now, here's one of the key things. If you want to be content... Just understand this, notice the bottom there of number one, an understanding of God's sovereign, purposeful control is critical to contentment. 
You need to come to trust that God knows what he's doing, that he is able, and he is at work. You know, we, we see the things that happen, and we may not understand them at the moment. In fact, we may even um, feel the pain of circumstances and disappointment and discouragement and great loss. But we see that Romans 8.28 says, For God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, that's exactly what we're talking about here, that the Apostle Paul could write those things. He's saying all things have worked together. I mean, when we think right out there, Genesis chapter 50, um, the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph is one of my favorite examples of this. Um, I often um, have gone back and looked through the story of the life of Joseph and found tremendous encouragement that God is working even through the great pains and the difficulties and the hardships of life. And it was Joseph who would stand before his brothers and say, what was meant for evil, God meant for good. And so this is the beautiful, the beautiful sovereign hand of God that can even turn the evil acts and the evil foolishness, the evil things of the world, the wrong motivations, and in fact, the wrong and difficult, the the painful impacts, and he can turn them, for those who love him, to the good of an eternal joy. Um, so, friends, we, we just need to recognize that if we want to be truly content, we need to have confidence that God knows what he's doing and that God has good purposes in, line, in mind. Number two is another one of those things, and we're going we're gonna to close with this with this note, and you're not going to like closing this way. That's okay, but I hope that it deeply, deeply causes you to think and me to think and to evaluate our lives. You see, a contented person is satisfied with little. It doesn't take much to make them satisfied. They're satisfied with little. Look what he says in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever, circum in whatever situation, I am to be content. He doesn't say, I have learned that I am content. Underline that or circle it, I am, and then circle the words, to be. I am to be content. You see, he sees that this is God's way. He sees that this is God's calling. He sees that this is part of what it means to trust in God. I've learned that it's God's will for me to be content in the circumstances that I find myself. And I've, I've learned that God is good. I've learned that God's in control and that this is his will for me. So you see, in part, this is a discipline of faith. And that's part of what we see here, that we can be satisfied with little. The word content is another one of these hepox legomenas, which means that it's only used one time in the New Testament, at least it's a hypox legomena for the Greek New Testament. It's used in a few other places in Greek literature, but here we see the word content means to be supplied or enough. It's supplied or enough or independent or self-sufficient is the idea. It, it's not, I'm, I'm not depending on something else here. I am depending upon what I have. Um, at the moment. 
You see, Paul is clarifying again that he is not dissatisfied with his circumstances. And we need to see that here, that he's not saying, oh, I was unhappy, but now your gift made me happy. That's not at all what he's saying. He knew the difference, though, between needs and what? And wants. That's right, David. He knew the difference between needs and wants. He knew the difference between what is it that he needs and what is it he wants and knowing that God is going to supply for my needs and very often he's going to even give me things that I would like in his providence and in his goodness. But it's not the things that I would like for the wrong reasons, but it's the things that I really would like for the greater reasons, the things that would bring the most joy. You see, when I was a kid, I was convinced that I needed a go-kart to be happy. Um, I remember that Mr. Anderson, George Anderson, over in one of the buildings over here on the other side um, of the courtyard, I remember being up in that corner courtyard and uh, hearing Mr. Anderson teach on the idea of ask God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ um, uh, for things, and yet you have not because you ask not, ask um, and God will supply. Well, my mind immediately went to go-kart go or minibike. I mean, that's what 10-year-olds think of. You know, if I just had that, I would be happy. But, you know, what I've come to learn since that in the last uh, 40 years is that actually a go-kart and a minibike isn't what I truly need. God has much grander plans for the needs of my mind and the needs of my heart. And when I start to see that he has much better things for me than a go-kart or a minibike, and I start to see that, oh, no, forgiveness is something that's really good, and, oh, peace in the midst of difficulty, that's something that's really good. Oh, and contentment that he offers to me such beautiful things that would cause me to be actually satisfied with what I have is a beautiful thing. Notice this with me. In regards to its wants, the world's mindset is out of control. Everything is a need. The world equates practically anything and everything is a need. I mean, you know, we, we've come to the place in our lives where there's so many luxuries that my grandparents and your grandparents would laugh at you if you said that's a need. And they would say, well, we got along just fine without it. I mean, how many times have you heard the, the talk between generations about those things? I mean, in this day and time, a lot of times, and now I'm finally old enough that Pastor Lucas and I and Pastor Jason and a few of you others uh, can sit around and we can talk about um, the younger generation and what their perception of what they need is. And, and then, but Carrie Johnson and, and uh, Colvin Pinkerton and Mrs. Uh, Manning and several of the others, they can sit around and look at us and say, can you believe these young guys, what they think that they need? You know, it's, it's so often very relative, but it is true that the world is growing in its insatiable desire for things that are not of God, things that are of this earthly life, things that um, will not ultimately bring true joy and peace, and especially eternal reward. You see, the Apostle Paul has decided to keep his wants in check. That's what he had decided to do. Now, it's not that he didn't know any better. We see that the Apostle Paul says, I have learned to be um, content with much 
and I have learned to be content with little. I believe that God in his good pleasure at different times uh, probably blessed the Apostle Paul with much. I believe that in the course of these 30 years of him traveling about, some churches really doing well, some circumstances really going well, um, that he was probably extremely well supplied and he'd come into town and some wealthy person, perhaps like Lydia or somebody else, comes to faith in Jesus and just blesses him and takes care of him and God uses that to give him rest. I'm not basing that upon any particular um, place in Scripture, but just knowing how ministry goes, that there's sometimes when there's a great respite, there's a great relief, there's a great time of rest, and then other times it is really hard and long and difficult. The Apostle Paul says, I've learned to deal with both, with contentment. Not always longing back for the good old days of that nice lady from Philippi that provided the great house overlooking the sea and and I was able to disciple people in great peace and tranquility, not, not always looking for yesteryear or hoping for tomorrow, but finding peace and contentment in today. You see, he kept his wants in check. Now, notice this, and I, I was just really praying through this and thinking through this. Instead of being satisfied with nothing, which is part of the picture that we see in Scripture, being satisfied with nothing, nothing will satisfy. There is a stark difference between these two. The Bible tells us to come and look to God as being our total satisfaction. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. That's a very earthly thing. But every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Look at that picture that, that our satisfaction and our sustenance, our living based upon what Jesus says in that, is, is not the earthly things that this world has to offer, but it is the truth of God. It's the presence of God. It's knowing God. That this becomes um, far more valuable than anything else. And so notice that statement again. Instead of being satisfied with nothing, you could put out there, but God... In the world's way, nothing will satisfy. How many times have we heard story after story after story of um, people who have risen through the ranks and become very wealthy and yet were never satisfied with the levels that they received? One person went to J.D. Rockefeller and said, Mr. Rockefeller, when will you have enough? Do you know what his response was? when I have a little bit more. Wow! At the time, the richest man in the world. J.D. Rockefeller was the Jeff Bezos of the world. And it, it would be like, Jeff Bezos, is this enough? And he would look at you and say, oh no, not yet. When I have a little bit more. You see, the, the, the same is true about fame. I, I had reason to just kind of look through the biography and the relationship a bit um, between uh, uh, Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner and how um, at her funeral he spoke and he gave a eulogy and he was talking about the fact, and, and many of you know that you know, Whitney Houston's life ended in great tragedy here. She was one of eminently, uh, of eminently f famous and 
um, an icon of pop culture, uh, an amazing voice, all of the glitz and the glamour um, of, of what the world would say you could have. She was raised in a Baptist church. Um, Kevin Cosner was raised in a Baptist church. Both of them were. But in the midst of even all of that, um, Brittany never had confidence that she was enough or that she had enough. She was always chased by the demons of not being good enough. And you would say, what are you talking about? She, she could sing like few other voices on the earth. And her, her smile and her, when she was on, just her winsome personality was, was so glorious in that way, in an earthly way. Well, my point is, is that when we look at what the best that the world has to offer, it can leave us so hungry and dry that we're, we're searching for other things. We're either searching for a little bit more of what we already have, or we're grasping at things such as drugs and alcohol, or more fame, or more money, or more whatever it may be. See, so when we come to the economy of God, we start to see that he says, this world will never truly satisfy. You can go after it and you can get what you want, but you're going to want a little bit more. When is enough enough? Um, nothing will satisfy. Now, I, I want you to notice this, and if you haven't printed out the notes, this isn't on the screen in front of you. You're just going to have to listen to my, my voice as I read this, but I really want these two passages to pour over you, and if you have the notes, I want you to notice these. Philippians chapter 3, or open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to give you just a second to get there. Take your Bible, open to Philippians chapter 3. Now, we've already studied this, but I want you to see how the book of Philippians is all fitting together, and especially in this picture of being satisfied with Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Go down to verse 8. It says, indeed, the Apostle Paul's writing, he writes, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, having him causes everything else to be as lost. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. That's everything. That's, that's everything from material possessions to perhaps even health. I mean, he lived a hard life serving the Lord through difficulty and, and perhaps even his reputation. We know that that was people thought he was crazy and evil because he had left Judaism and pursued the fulfillment of Judaism, which is Messiah in Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, underline it, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Not that I'm going to be doing anything to be acceptable before God, but that God gives me his righteousness in Christ. And he does that as I trust in him by faith. Look at verse 10. That I may know him. Can you underline that? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
So even going to the, cru- the cruel and horrific death of Christ, paying for our sins, the Apostle Paul is saying, I am glad to go all the way right through the door of death into eternal life for Jesus Christ. You see, that's, that's counting everything else as lost. That's being, that's being very satisfied with little or being satisfied with nothing that this world has to offer and all with Christ. Look at the next one. Jesus is speaking in Matthew, in, excuse me, Mark chapter 8 in verse 34. If you have your Bible, turn over to Mark 8, 34. And here's where Jesus really boils it all down. He just boils it down so beautifully. He lets us know what the real picture is of eternal life in this and what is really being, that we are being called to do. In verse, chapter 8, verse 34, it says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, so this is to everybody, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. You see, there's, there's wants there. There's needs there. And Jesus is saying, let those wants go. Let those needs go. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's the place of death. Die to yourself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Look at verse 36. Everybody read verse 36 out loud. Even if you're at home and if you have it open, read it. Um, read it here in this room with me. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul. Wow. You see, Jesus boils it all down that this world is not going to satisfy and it's certainly not going to save you. But when you come to the Savior, you come to the one who can satisfy and save, you have everything you need. And this is where we come to that picture of true contentment. Because I have God, I have everything. And friends, we're not even talking about the end view of restoration. We're not talking about the end view of glory, that he's going to come and make all things new. We're just talking about even in this life that he is enough, that he is enough for me. Friends may leave, health may go, wealth may fall. All of these other things may turn away from my circumstance. But when I have God, I have enough. Man, do we live like this? Do we really think like this? Is God that valuable to you? Now, to some folks who do not know the Lord Jesus, there's one of two things that are being said here. Either this sounds like crazy talk, or some of you are saying, that's what I need. That's what I need. I, I've been looking to things in this life. I've been looking either to relationships and even people or maybe it's even family. I've been looking to some type of security. I've been looking to a hope for some type of peace toward the end of my life. And, and I don't have it. I need the one who gives ultimate peace. The one who can, 
that can cause me to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I need the peace that he can give. I need the contentment that can only come from my soul being right in God. Well, God offers that to us. He offers that to us through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, come to me. As he says here, come take up my cross. Come take up my life. Find yourself in me. And you will find everything that you need. I have one question for you. And the key question for you at the end of this message on on this uh, first part of this message is, is Christ enough for me? I believe it would be good for you to meditate on that this week. Is Christ enough for me? Is he enough for me to be joyful? Is he enough for me to be content? Is he enough? I want to close with the words of a song. They're not going to be on the screen in front of you, but I just want you to listen to these lyrics. It's, it's on your outline if you've printed it out. Um, Give Me Jesus, written by Pastor David Lachance. And look what he says. In verse 1, he says, Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. They just, it's just a name. It's, an, it's nominal. It's not, it's not true. All its joys are but a name. But his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul, with my Savior watching o'er me. I can sing though billows roll. That's the, the, the billows of trouble, the, billo- the, the wind and the waves that crash. That's what a billow is. A billow rolls over me. It hits me like a, like a great force of trouble. He says, with my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing though billows roll. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption, pledge of endless life above. You see, that's restoration. He's going to make it all new. He's, going to, he's given us heaven, pledge of endless life above. Take this world. My God's enough. Look at verse 3. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. The chorus, oh, the height and depth of mercy. Mercy, it all rises and falls on God's mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. His love overcomes our sins. Oh, the fullness of redemption, Pledge of endless life above. Take this world. My God's enough. Look at the bridge that's repeated over and over in the song and the performance of it. Take this world and give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be. Take this world and give me Jesus. Till that day, my Lord, I see. May this express our hearts. May this help our hearts see that we can run to God and find all that we need and be truly content. Pandemic, injustice, loss, uncertainty, 
These things do not dictate our joy. But knowing and being with God does. Would you pray with me? Lord, may we run to you for our contentment. Lord, may we abandon the foolish things of this life. And may we find the joy that only you can give. Father, I pray that this morning that we would really evaluate our lives. May we really ask, is Jesus enough for me? May we really evaluate whether our hearts are satisfied in you or are we looking elsewhere? I pray that you would use this week, Lord, in our lives. I pray that we would be willing to ask these questions and that we would be willing to say, Lord, I want you to be all I want. Lord, when we find that you are all we want, then we discover that we have all that we need. Lord, where my heart is not this way, I pray that you would, oh Lord, I pray that you'd be gentle, but I pray that you would transform me. I pray that as I view the troubles of this life, that I would not be worried that my contentment is going to be lost because of my circumstances. But Lord, that I would find my contentment in you. Contentment in your sovereign plan. Contentment in the fact that this world cannot buy my joy. Lord, I think about many Christians that this week in China are experiencing great hardship. Lord, I think about Christians in China that have been told that they must pledge allegiance to the Communist Party and say that it is their God or they won't receive any social assistance. Some of the impoverished cities, there's been great clampdown from the Communist regime. And Lord, Christians there are having to make difficult decisions. I know that for some it's not difficult at all. They say, my God is enough, and he will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Lord, I think about the testimonies of Romanians in our community here, in our church, and Russians in our community here and in our church, who, because they refused to go along with the ideologies of evil doctrines, they suffered hardship but they chose Christ over all of the things that a government or a society could give. Lord, I pray that we would grow in this, that we would find our joy in you, and we would stop being afraid of earthly circumstances souring, but instead we would say, oh dear God, be my all and my ever-filling joy. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would grow us this week. I pray that you would help us to evaluate our lives. Amen. Would you sing together?